I mean, let there be a thousand blossoms bloom as far as I'm concerned. But I ain't spending any time on it. It is feared that the Prime Minister has gone. Fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Well, again, uh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. I tell you what, any boss who sacks anyone for not turning up the day is a boat. <laughs> G'day everyone, welcome to Cooked, a per capita podcast where we look at some of the weird, wonderful and absolutely batshit wild things that have happened in Australian history. My name's Shirley Jackson, I'm a political economist and the director of the Centre for New Industry here at Per Capita, and I'm joined today by one of our research economists, Sam Ibrahim. Sam, how you doing? Good, hey, what's up? Yeah, no, doing real good over here. And of course, this couldn't be happening without Per Capita's producer and audio guru, Rebecca Connell. Bex, how you doing? Hey, how are you going? Yeah, yeah, real, real good. So really, really exciting. This is our first time having a crack at this podcast, this absolutely crazy podcast that came out of nowhere. How are we feeling? Good. Pretty good. I'm ready to be famous. <laughs> I love that. That's absolutely the aim here. It's not to like entertain or inform. It's absolutely to get that cash, be famous. No, like... I'm an incredibly selfish person. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I'm looking forward to your reality TV debut after this. Like, and I could say, I knew them back. It's then. coming. It's coming. <laughs> Awesome. So, uh, Bex, what's the kind of idea behind this podcast? Why are we doing it today? Well, you know, I thought recently that news about the radioactive capsule that just fell off the side of a truck in WA was, like, really interesting. Like, sure. How did you guys feel about it? That is something that I definitely know about, and I definitely follow the news. That's that's what I feel about it. Are you being serious? You, do, you don't know about this? I legit missed this story. Uh, you guys, like, I'm looking at, like, the weirdest, nerdiest stuff when I'm looking at the news. I'm, like, you know, like, talking to the, looking for the interest rate hikes. I'm looking for, like, what, like, flame wars are happening in Parliament over stuff that nobody cares about. Do you know what I mean? Like, so I miss all the fun stuff, so that's why I'm looking forward to this chat. You could have um, picked up a tiny metal Tic Tac and died a week later and had no <laughs> idea why. That's right. Oh, I'm, my God. I am severely underinformed on all the things that can actually kill me, but I care so much about the things that do not matter. Do you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, on that topic, I was thinking, like, the words Australia and nuclear, they're not really synonymous, are they? They're not something that you really think about it's something that you kind of think about when you think about the us right well all of a sudden we're gonna have like nuclear subs that are like i don't know like supposedly gonna be like locked off the nuclear component within the sub not sure what they do if they need to work on it but apparently we're not gonna have access to it so i don't know man like don't we dig a bunch of uranium out of the ground are we one of the like the second or third like leading producers of uranium i'm pretty sure yeah, yeah right. something like that yeah yeah and then we you're usually right. ship it offshore to like france and to to america and places like that mm. i think yeah we have three active uranium mines in the whole country but we don't actually use that uranium ourselves mm. necessarily we do have a single nuclear plant in the entire country but it produces medical isotopes so ah, right not nuclear in the way that you know we're thinking about bombs, right? And like not nuclear in the way that we think about like Springfield, Springfield, like the big exactly. cooling towers. Yeah, yeah. We don't have none of that here. Exactly. So like we're, we're not a nuclear superpower and nor have we ever really been considered one. But in spite of this, we're actually home to some pretty controversial nuclear weapon testing. 
Were you guys aware of this? No. Like, like I'm like a kid from like the 80s. So like I remember, the only thing that I remember is like, there was the atoll testing when I was a kid that was like, I think the French used to test somewhere. I think maybe that was somewhere near Australia. I think that's the only thing that I really know about. Well, the atoll's pretty uh, far out in the It's in the Pacific. Pacific somewhere, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's our neighbourhood. That's just like, that's next door. Do you know what it's, I mean? Like, It's a huge neighbourhood. If you drop a bomb in the Pacific, does anyone hear it fall? You know? Like, exactly. That's the real question. Probably heaps of uh, Pacific Islanders, actually. That's uh, super inconsiderate. Yeah. <laughs> Already this is going terribly for me. <laughs> well, this just goes to show that this sort of part of history isn't in the Australian school curriculum. And for me personally, it only really came into my consciousness because of a historical drama comedy from the ABC called Operation Buffalo. Okay. Before we talk about like the content, like, was it good? Like, is this a recommendation that we're giving out right now? Should we go and watch this? I didn't watch it. Okay. There we go. But it did send me down this rabbit hole. Quick question. Do Buffalo have anything to do with this? I just, I need that. I'm going to be thinking about that for the next 10 minutes. Uh, no, no, no okay. not at all. Not, not all even right. remotely? Like, Why okay. the names? That's actually something I don't know. But Sam, just checking. You know that like Buffalo wings, they're not made from Buffalo, right? Like they're made from chicken. Like that's just, no, I do that's just branding. That. Okay. But cool, like, cool. Okay. There is a reason to this. All these operations, I like go down rabbit holes of why they have their names. Like Operation Paperclip, if you ever want to yep. check it out, the reason for that, awesome reason why it's called yep. that. Anyway. Loki obsessed with Operation Paperclip. We love when, you know, like Nazis get you to the moon. Do you know? Like that's yeah. just that's just a good good time. <laughs> <laughs> Without further ado, this is actually the story of nuclear testing in Australia. So nuclear testing took place in Australia um, in the 1950s and the 1960s, but the story really begins on August 6, 1945. At 8.15 a.m. that day, the U.S. had just dropped the nuclear bomb Little Boy on Hiroshima, destroying the city and killing tens of thousands of people instantly, uh, tens and thousands more by the end of the year. I'm sorry, are we just skipping past Little Boy? Like, is yeah. that... I just said Little Boy. Yeah, I know, but like... That's what it's called, the bomb. It's called Little Boy? Yeah. yeah. That's wild. Do you <laughs> want to know what the plane was called that dropped it? Oh, wait, uh, is it the Enola Gay? Is that? That's it. Yeah, that's right. I knew that. Thank you, The Simpsons, like, oh. for telling me about World War II. For me, it was that orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark song. But anyway. <laughs> we are showing our ages. <laughs> 9,000 kilometres away in London, the then Prime Minister Clement Attlee received the news. Have you heard of Clement Attlee before? Uh, yeah, I've got the biography here. My favourite oh. thing about Clement Attlee was uh, one time when in Parliament he was in uh, the men's room and um, uh, Winston Churchill came in uh, and stood beside him at the urinal and, uh, you know, uh, Clement Attlee's like, oh, you know, g'day. Uh, he probably didn't say g'day. He was super British. It was probably like, good morrow, dear sir, um, as as Winston comes up and he's like, oh, you know, keep your eyes forward, Atlee. When you see something this big, you try to nationalise it, which 
baller move. Like, okay, <laughs> Winston Churchill, yep. get it together. Honestly, <laughs> getting First it together all, wasn't what he directly was directly next to someone at the urinal and then just go ahead and say the most cooked thing that you could think of. To be fair, Jeez. keeping it together and not being cooked isn't what Winston Churchill was known for. Do you know? Like, no, oh my god, <laughs> so. I feel like you're going to get like two separate diverse reactions out of what Atlee does next. Mm-hmm. Um, Atlee at the time had only been in office for a month. Um, and upon hearing about the bomb and its devastation on Hiroshima, he has this grave revelation. This new technology has rendered Britain's existing defenses utterly useless. Defences that were already stretched to their limits by Germany's aerial assaults during the uh, Second World War already. Um, And from there, he immediately decides that Britain actually needs its own atomic bomb. He put it this way in a secret memo that he put out 22 days later. The answer to an atomic bomb on London is an atomic bomb on another great city. Cool. How does that make you feel? Just solid logic. (laughs) Definitely not cooked. (laughs) Yeah, just an all-round cool dude, you know? It feels really <laughs> cool good. Like, cool dudes. Yeah. The first thing he thinks of is mutual destruction. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so this this moment set Atlee, a Labour politician who was hardly regarded as a warmonger, on the path to creating Britain's nuclear arsenal. And it's kind of weird because this is the same guy who is the architect for the development of NATO, the father of the NHS and Britain's welfare state. So it kind of just doesn't fit in my head, but here we are. Yeah, I don't know. It's just that like wartime mentality that like the Reds were spreading everywhere, right? Like there's Nazism on the rise, there's there's communism and we're just conflating both of those and we need to protect ourselves and the best way to do that is to like, you know, kind of destroy a part of humanity's soul. Like that's the only way that we could possibly protect ourselves from ideas we don't like. Pretty much. How do you feel, Sam? I mean, it like it makes sense in the sense of like, I guess – him and like that entire generation like experienced this massive trauma of the second world war which is like one thing um so the idea of war isn't that foreign and then there's the whole thing of like he like um fathered the nhs and nato and all of these things that would protect his land like after the second world war first so, like, world I, war i think so, you mean comrade sorry first world um, war yeah like and I, I think there's a, like that thing about like how barbaric everybody who was involved with the first world war kind of found it. Like that there was all of those, like, uh, you know, there was mustard gas and like, this is where we, we, we see the first evidences or at least the first recorded evidences of things like what they called shell shock back then or what right. we now regard as post-traumatic stress. And I think like there's something about that that I think made them feel like if we can just like short, sharp, take care of things. Yeah. Um, this is in no way an endorsement, though. Like, I yeah. think it's absolutely horrific. Um, but, yeah, yeah, it, it's funny how, like, trauma in one space can, like, influence your ability to uh, not see the trauma that could be caused in another space. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, of course. In 1947, Britain started developing nuclear weapons in earnest. They'd had uh, dappled with nuclear stuff in the past, but... Now they're like, we're going to make a bomb. 
And the Brits had originally hoped to collaborate with the US at the time and also use Nevada and the Virgin Islands, or more specifically the Pacific Proofing Grounds, as their testing sites. But the US did a shifty and turned them down, essentially making the British sign a deal that effectively restricted any access to their nuclear research and secrets, which was... America learned its lesson and never did anything to control another country again. (laughs) I mean, I think it's more this thing of how well the US treats its allies. Mm. Like, it's not Mm. necessarily trying to control Britain, but just to shut them out in that way. As Australians, we wouldn't know anything about that, would we? No. (laughs) No. So then we fast forward to 1950 and Attlee approaches our Prime Minister, then Robert Menzies, with a proposal that would enable the Brits to test their nuclear capabilities on Australian soil. Robert Menzies famously thirsty for the Queen. That was literally my next line. (laughs) (laughs) Menzies, a pro-Britain Tory, eager to maintain strong ties with the motherland, naturally agreed. I love that. Motherland. Menzies is literally like the original wife guy, except his wife is Great Britain. Do you know? Like that Mm. dude was so thirsty. Yeah, he wishes he coined the term motherland. (laughs) It's kind of Freudian. Um, Howard Beale, who was the Australian Minister of Supply at the time, would later call the agreement a striking example of inter-commonwealth cooperation on a grand scale. England has the bomb and the know-how. We have the wide open spaces, much technical skill and great willingness to help the motherland. So following some negotiation and plenty of land surveys, the British government were given clearance to conduct nuclear tests on the Montebello Islands, which is just off the coast of Western Australia. Now, as I said before, Britain were originally hoping to test in the American proofing grounds, but the notion was knocked back. So the Montebello Islands were as good as backup as any. So once the surveys were conducted, Menzies made sure that he got re-elected in 1951 and then he formally agreed to Britain's proposal. So at the same time Menzies was being re-elected, Attlee was being succeeded by everyone's favourite bloke who was born in a pub, Winston Churchill. Was he born in a pub? That This all checks out. It's like Spider-Man's origin story. He was like literally bitten by a radioactive pub. We love this. I, I think more specifically, and I need to double check this, I think he was born in the bathroom of a pub. Hello everyone, Rebecca here. I was editing this tonight and realised that I better double check that claim. So I did, and it turns out it's been debunked. Churchill was not born in a pub. So my night is ruined and I'm extremely disappointed. Anyway, back to the show. But I'll need to double check that. Again, this is all this all checks out, right? He was like famous during the war for like holding meetings when he was in the bath drinking champagne, like just like inviting people in. It's like, I don't know how you're supposed to like govern in a war. Like I'm not I'm not an expert on how to lead a country through war, but I'm pretty sure inviting generals when your balls are out is probably the not way the right way to do it. He yeah, had a... there's a, such a thing as like being too comfortable in your own skin. That's, <laughs> that's it. it. Like we we I'm not we to love body it. Shame anybody, that's right. Like hundred percent, be proud of what you've got, Winston. But like maybe don't talk to generals when your balls are out. A profound self confidence that's unmatched. Not warranted. 
<laughs> so Churchill's elected, and a few months later, he's telling Britain, we are definitely dropping bombs within the next year. In February 1952, the Australian public were finally informed that this was going to happen. Fast forward to October 3rd, 1952. Britain conducts its first nuclear test, Operation Hurricane, on the Montebello Islands, or more specifically the Trimule Island, making Britain the world's third nuclear superpower. And that's behind the US and the USSR. And I assume everyone was, like, really cool with this. They were just like... And everyone awesome. was happy, and they clapped. Yeah. <laughs> they went to the UN, they held hands, and they all talked about how much they loved each other. Yeah. Like, this is, this is great and good, and nothing bad could ever happen mm -hmm. because of this. The atomic de uh, detonation named PLIM created a 25-kiloton explosion. The fallout cloud rose 10,000 feet high and was blown out to sea as intended. However, the wind laid a reverse direction and blew the fallout back over the Australian mainland, stretching as far as Brisbane. Two more tests would take place in the Montebello Islands. One, which was named Mosaic G2, was the largest nuclear blast to take place in Australia, with an official yield of 60 kilotons. Now, to put this into perspective... Little Boy, which fell on Hiroshima seven years prior, had a yield of approximately 15 kilotons. Jesus. And the Fat Man, which fell on Nagasaki shortly after, had a yield of 20 kilotons. Holy so, crap. What so, drunk teenager is in charge of naming these bombs? Like, Oppenheimer. It's <laughs> <laughs> an actual dude. It's just like, you know what? I am the harbinger of death. I feel like they might have had a board. And they were just like writing names. And yeah. Like, that sounds cool. And they chose Little Boy and Fat Man. Those were the coolest yeah. names they could come up with. What was rejected? That's what I want to know. I mean, the people who named it went straight from that to like working at Family Guy. Just immediately. Hello, Fat Man. <laughs> That's like, right. Exactly. Yeah, it's been seven years since the first ever atomic bomb's been dropped. And Britain are already producing nuclear weapons that are way more powerful. Which is... Again, great. The Montebello Islands were only uh, accessible via sea, making them unsuitable to be a permanent test site. So a new site had to be commissioned. Emu Fields, roughly 1,000 k's northwest from Adelaide, was the next target. And these fields became home to Operation Totem, which is arguably a more notorious uh, experiment than Operation Buffalo, which we'll get to shortly. Two weapons were detonated, uh, the first of which created a mushroom cloud that was 15,000 feet high and was visible for over 24 hours. Oh. The cloud was even spotted by passengers on a commercial airline flying over South Australia. Can you imagine being on that plane? Like, uh, this is your captain speaking. We'll be flying at 14,000 feet. If you look over to the right, you might see uh, a massive fucking mushroom cloud that the British have just dropped on something called emu fields, which I hope have no emus in them. I feel like he'd be more like, uh, yeah, please don't look out the window. <laughs> Were these experiments, like, secret? Because I would assume everyone on the flight immediately thinks World War Three just kicked off. Like, <laughs> That's right. They were public, but obviously a lot of it was secret. Okay. 
I mean, can okay. you see things from planes when they're secret? Is that is that something that secret things can can be seen from? <laughs> Ask the British. It's their operation. That is a shitty secret. <laughs> yeah. Like it's the overall experiments and stuff. Like the operations are public, but I'm sure the details are not. Like I'm pretty yeah. sure they're not bringing up the ABC and saying, Hey, everyone tune in. We're, we're dropping this bomb at this time. So emu fields had the opposite problem to Montebello. It had a very limited supply to water because it's in the desert and was prone to dust storms again, because it's in a desert. So once again, they had to select another site somewhere that meets these specifications. 160 kilometers free from human habitation, accessible via road and rail to a port or a nearby airport, with a tolerable climate, reasonably flat terrain, agreeable slash predictable weather conditions, and isolated for security reasons. I really love that the tolerable climate bit is in there because it feels very British. I'm Absolutely. sure there's like a scientific reason, but it really feels like it's too hot today. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Also, the use of the word agreeable, like I just don't think that that's something that we ever yeah. describe things that aren't people anymore. <laughs> like an appropriate climate, I'd be like, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, so like, right. we're not going to house isotopes in 40-degree weather, but agreeable is, well, we can wear a linen today. <laughs> that's right. I'm sure there was a scientific reason for like why 160 kilometres was the number. It does not feel like enough. Maybe I've like watched <laughs> the show Chernobyl like way too many times once. It just seems like bad news it to really be able to doesn't... drive there in like an hour and a half. Like, like, yeah, for that to be their minimum sort of requirement doesn't seem like enough. Yeah. Well, thankfully, their next site, Maralinga, was 800 kilometers northwest of Adelaide. Um, okay. The site was originally known as X300, and I don't know who named that, but it was renamed as Merla uh, Maralinga after the Garrick word for thunder, which is, like, kind of cool. Is is it? It feels like, I, I don't know, like when you're rebranding a bomb site with a First Nations word, that doesn't, that doesn't feel good. This bit will make you even more... Oh, God. It's not even a local Indigenous word. The Garrick people are from Northern Territory. Oh, my God. Classic. So I Not even using yeah. the language of the nation that they're dropping it on. Like, yeah. I don't, I don't know why that's worse, but it is. <laughs> I feel it's worse. It's absolutely worse. Because, like, I can just imagine British people being like, oh, Maralinga, see, we, we used an Indigenous word, and the Indigenous people being like, I don't know that word. That's not and ours. And then it also That's immediately saying, like, by the way, you can't come back to this land for about three to 5,000 years. <laughs> it's right. un unusable. Yeah. But, you know, it's a word that, yeah. you, you know, people that look like you kind of know. Like, just it's, wild. It's like that corporate thing on, like, uh, in Black History Month or whatever where they try and co-opt uh, co a word to sound more... Um, more, uh, what's the word I'm looking for now? Yeah. With it's a hundred percent a branding exercise, right? Like it's just so. I shitty. feel like it, it must have been. 
A formal memo of agreements was signed in March 1956, and six months later, uh, Maralinga was used for Operation Buffalo, which is that famous one that got turned into a TV show. After a number of cancellations and costly delays due to weather, the first tests of Operation Buffalo were conducted on the 27th of September 1956. The first device, codenamed One Tree, was detonated at 1700 hours in less than ideal conditions, with an explosion that had an estimated yield of 15 kilotons. The cloud rose 11,400 feet high, much higher than anticipated, and crossed eastward. One tree was followed by three more devices, the much smaller Marku and Kite, which together had an explosive yield of 4.5 kilotons, and the larger breakaway, which had a 10 kiloton explosion. Some of the fallout from these blasts were conducted, were detected, sorry, in rainwater deposited between Brisbane and Lismore, thousands of kilometres away. According to the National Museum of Australia, radioactive fallout from these tests have reached as far as Townsville, which is 3,000 kilometres away. You're shaking your head. That's just, this must, that's just This wild. mustn't be a good thing. I mean, I've just, I've never heard of this, and clearly it's having impact still to this day. Like, it's... It's, it's nuclear waste. It's radioactive isotopes that are just... Yeah, we'll get into it a bit more. So around a year later, Operation Antler took place and three more devices were detonated. The final test, Taranaki, had a yield of 26.6 kilotons. So as you were saying before, you were asking about it being secret. So it wasn't. Uh, Initially, there was actually enough support from the Australian public to test nuclear weapons on home soil. A 1952 poll found that 58% of Aussies actually supported this. However, this support steadily declined, which was consistent with the global trends at the time. Those trends culminated in the moratorium on nuclear testing from 1958 to September 1961, and then followed by the 1963 Partial Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, which banned nuclear or atmospheric testing, sorry, worldwide. Shortly after that, Maralinga became redundant and was placed under caretaker status where the cleanup operation commenced and it was officially closed in 1967. So overall, 12 tests were conducted across the Montebello Islands, Emu Fields and Maralinga with hundreds of minor trials, some of which involved blowing up plutonium with TNT for science. Uh, conducted between 1952 and 1963. That is the myth thing I've ever heard in my life. Like, I just let's see what happens. Do you know? Let's, like, let's find out what happens when you mix dynamite with nuclear isotopes. Let's just fuck around and find out. Yeah, it's it, taking it, those yeah. kids that, like, lit 10 sparklers at a time and then giving them a military budget <laughs> and just going, go, run with it. <laughs> Pierre Menzies assured the parliament that no conceivable injury to life, men or property could emerge from these tests. That's a direct quote. He said that. And it goes to show that's not true. He did not know what he was talking about. A lack of safety protocols and standards at the sites meant that exposure levels were not measured and many personnel were unprotected. 30% of British and Australian servicemen exposed to the blast died of cancer 
and the Aboriginal people living near the sites continue to suffer higher cancer mortality rates and more types of cancers than the general Australian population. Who Jesus could have Christ. seen that happen? That's insane. Like clearly their policy was like, everyone put on your protection and they just put on sunglasses. Like they're just putting on aviator sunglasses. You're like, you're the, fine, champ. The goggles. The <laughs> yeah, goggles do, do nothing. nothing. Like, oh my God. The fuck. It. I was thinking that when you said you're like, oh, it's like, you know, however many kilometers away from South Australia. I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's like right in the middle of like traditional owner areas, right? Like where people might still be living on country in um, the northern part of South Australia. That is absolutely cooked. Yeah, those areas were where the bombs were actually dropped, obviously weren't Mm. um, inhabited. Um, A lot of the Indigenous population in that area were sort of pushed out while they were making the railways, but they're still... In that general area. At that 160 kilometer mark. Radius, much. yeah, like, probably. Yeah, that's right. Um, I have the sneaking suspicion that they didn't do adequate enough surveys to actually track where people were, but yeah. I can't confirm or deny that. And as we were just saying about it being the traditional lands of people, it's the traditional lands of the, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciations and try my best. Uh, Tia Jurata, uh, Yankun Jujara, and Anagu people. Yeah, they're the traditional owners of that land. Their permission was not sought in these tests and their relationship with the land was not recognised. Many were exposed to radioactive fallout because, duh. And the radioactive fallout itself was dubbed by locals in Emu Fields and Maralinga as the Black Mist with reports of people, Indigenous and otherwise, and this is a quote, coming back home covered in black, slimy, greasy stuff after working in the surrounding area. Jesus Christ. There's even a report I found in the ABC where an Indigenous man was blinded by the tests. Oh, my (laughs) God. I feel like it won't be controversial to say that, like, the British and the descendants who now occupy this land have done some pretty terrible things, right? Like we've done some pretty terrible things to the first peoples of this place, but like dropping nuclear bombs that were bigger than Hiroshima without seeking permission, without giving some sort of, you know, recompense without accommodating or, or um, uh, paying reparations or something about it. This feels this feels up there, like. Definitely. And then just like with the rest of all of the terrible things done, just not teaching it in schools and just immediately yeah. pretending like it never happened. Oh, 100%. After Moralinga's closure in 1967, the British authorities were tasked with the cleanup. The soil, which had become contaminated with plutonium-239, was, and I quote, simply ploughed into the ground while debris was buried under concrete. A flawed 1968 scientific report erroneously determined that the British had fulfilled their decontamination obligation and the Australian government agreed. And this turned out to be bullshit. This is the military industrial complex's uh, version of that'll buff right out, you know? Like you just, you just, just push it into the ground, it'll be fine, just pave over it, no worries. No one's going to notice. That's right. That'll buff right out. 
1984, a radiation survey was conducted in Maralinga in preparation for transferring the site back to its traditional owners. The survey led to a royal commission into the tests themselves. A year later, the McClellan Royal Commission released its report, which was highly critical of Britain's treatment of Australia, the compliant attitude of the Australian government, and the management of the Australian body charged with overseeing the program's safety. It specifically condemned the lack of commitment to ensuring the safety and welfare of local Indigenous peoples. In 1993, Britain agreed to make a 2 million, not 2 million, 20 million pound ex gratis payment towards the continuing cleanup at Maralinga. And then in 1994, the Australian government paid a $13.5 million compensation to the traditional owners of Maralinga. The land was formally returned to its people in 2009. Reports. Is it sorry. Still radioactive? We're getting to that. Okay. Reports as recent as 2021 have shown that highly radioactive particles are still present in Maralinga, having been absorbed into the soil, groundwater, and thus being absorbed into the plant and wildlife. Native food around the site is still far too risky to consume, much to the detriment of the local people. As Dr. Megan Cook from Monash University put it in an interview with the ABC, we now have a sustained and prolonged release of plutonium into the local ecosystem. Jesus Christ. But it's okay. We gave it back. Like, it's fine. We poisoned it forever, but we gave it back. It's fine. Like, thanks, government. I mean, there are protocols on this. Like, we aren't the only country that has experienced this. There's a way of going about this. And officials have clearly just actively said, don't worry about it. Fuck we don't it. care. Yeah. Let's just leave it to them. Between 1996 and 2000, all but 120 square kilometres of the around 3,200 square kilometres of Maralinga country has been cleaned up to a standard considered safe for unrestricted access. You can even book a tour with the Maralinga Tour Company, which is active today, and you can visit one of the key sites with the cool, what do you call it? It's like a big brass uh, plaque that says that a bomb was dropped here, basically. Jesus. And that's how the Brits irradiated our country. Bomb tourism. That's that's what we're left with. That's Yeah. That's like the worst consolation prize I can imagine. How are we feeling after that? I mean, like, so basically we had bombs dropped in rural South Australia and off the coast of WA because America was like, you can't play with our toys, Britain. We, you can't participate in our nuclear program. And then they thought, well, we'll just drop a bunch of bombs on Australia. That's you can't fine. play in our sandbox, find your own. And Literally. Britain's like, well, we're Britain. We don't have a sandbox. Oh, no, wait, we own Australia. Jesus That's a huge Christ. sandbox. <sighs> I mean, they got some pretty powerful weapons out of it that hopefully will never be used, but yeah. Oh, I didn't even think about that, that the like best case scenario for them out of all of this is that they is get that to use phenomenal. these massive bombs. Is that they're never used. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yep. Are we, uh, are we going to do any fun ones on this, on this podcast? Or is it all yeah. just going to be super fucking depressing? 
I wanted to do this one first because I feel like it's a bit topical. Again, given that we dropped a radioactive capsule on the side of the road recently. But yeah, no, I, I think there's going to be some more lighthearted ones. This is the thrown into the deep end philosophy of, of podcasting. We're just going to yeah. tell you some terrible shit that we did. Cut your teeth on something that. pretty awful first. And if you stick around, maybe we'll do some fun ones. <laughs> Yeah, look, my dad taught me how to swim by literally throwing me into the deep yeah. end. And I've got to say, it's not fun for anybody. <laughs> yeah. not my it's also not like the best way to learn. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Uh, okay, well, that's the end of our first episode. Absolutely outstanding that we managed to get through it despite the horrific subject matter. Uh, A-plus work, Bex. Um, Thank you. Thanks everyone for coming and listening to us. If you want to find out more, you can check us out at www.percapita.org.au. This show is a production of Per Capita, the independent progressive think tank dedicated to fighting inequality in Australia. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was written and recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation, whose lands were never ceded, and we pay our respects to their elders past and present.